Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How does the place we live inform our art? With its valleys and peaks, sagebrush and streams, the Great Basin inspires creative expression and forms as varied as its landscape. Four distinguished artists, a filmmaker, a photographer, a novelist, and a poet, will join in a panel discussion about the unique inspiration discovered in the Great Basin. It's a part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, and it'll be happening on Tuesday, uh, the 27th. Uh, this coming Tuesday at the Salt Lake City Public Library, 7 p.m., free and open to the uh, public. And to uh, have those panelists with me uh, today on the program, grateful for their presence. Uh, Stephen Trimble is a writer, editor, and photographer. He's published more than 20 books. In the 26 years since he published his Great Basin Natural History Narrative, Sagebrush Ocean, the ecological stories of this place have become so complex that the book documents an endangered landscape. Uh, Stephen Trimble teaches writing at University of Utah Honors College, makes his home in Salt Lake City and the Red Rock country of Torrey, Utah. Stephen Trimble, uh, welcome back to Access Utah. Hi, Tom. I'm delighted to be here. Great to uh, be with you. Uh, Jana Richman uh, was born and raised in Utah's West Desert. She's the daughter of a small-time rancher and a hand-wringing Mormon mother, she says. She's author of a memoir, Riding in the Shadows of the Saints, a woman's story of motorcycling the Mormon Trail, and two novels, The Last Cowgirl, which won the Willa Award for Contemporary Fiction, The Ordinary Truth. And her essays have appeared in various newspapers and journals. She lives in Escalante at this point. Jenna Richmond was on uh, was it last week or the week before with uh, the book Dirt, A Love Story. And uh, welcome back to the program. Do we, do we, do we have Jenna Richmond? Yes, Tom, uh, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. Thank you. Good to, good to join with you again. Happy to be here. Uh, Alicia Anderson was born and raised in Northern California. She later moved to Utah and received her BFA in studio arts from Brigham Young University. Recently graduated from University of Utah with a MS in environmental humanities, and where she was also awarded the Floyd O'Neill Fellowship in Western American uh, Studies. She's out with an interesting uh, film series on the Ochre Mountains. Alicia Anderson, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. Happy to be here. And Michael McLean is uh, editor with uh, both Sugar House Review and the and Salt Front Studies in Human Habitat. He earned an MFA in creative writing from Colorado State University and an MS in environmental and humanities at the University of Utah. His work has appeared in numerous journals. He lives in Salt Lake City, where he oversees literary programming for Utah Humanities. Michael McLean, we've worked behind the scenes with you on the Book Festival. Great to have you uh, in front of the microphone here today. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Let me start uh, with with uh, this discussion with uh, Stephen Trimble. Um, it, it's interesting. Your, I guess, the preface to the new edition of, uh, of your book, uh, Sagebrush Ocean. Uh, you talk about relationship when you when you go out to uh, get to know a place. You say you lead with your photography. You look at it with a photographer's eye. Yeah, that's right, Tom. Um, you know, in the Great Basin we enter a challenging landscape. It's challenging in terms of our expectations of what beauty is. You know, it's very much like Wallace Stegner once said, we have to get over, get over the color green. And when I take uh, new friends and family out into the, into the desert, into the Great Basin, they have, uh, they take them a while to get used to all that space. And they use words like desolate and barren. And I keep trying to get them to not use those words. And so it, it's uh, very much a, a visual challenge in terms of our expectations of romantic landscape. And I think it takes a while to, to understand enough about the place 
to begin to feel comfortable there. And when I go out to, to respond as a, as a creative person, uh, I, I soak up the feel of the place first as a photographer, and then as I learn more about the place, I, I go back to my journal and start writing about it as well. And you talk about this, your process, it's an active form of patience. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's a really a matter of paying attention. That's what all of us on this panel, I think, do, is pay attention to things that other people may not be paying attention to. And in a desert as spare as the Great Basin, it does require patience. You don't instantly see herds of elk or caribou crashing across the landscape. Uh, but amazing and wonderful things reveal themselves if you do bring that active form of patience with you and, and pay attention. Hmm. We turn to uh, Jenna Richmond. Uh, I was interested in reading a, a piece on your website, uh, jennarichmond.com. You talk about growing up in Tooele, and, and during, the, during that time, you, you didn't realize you were in a desert. You were, you were in Tooele, I guess. I, I think that I, um, you know, when you grow up in a place, you kind of take the place for granted. And I didn't really um, understand my surroundings for a long time and maybe didn't really understand them intellectually until I started to write about it. Um, but certainly that place uh, and, and the kind of um, openness that, that Steve talked about uh, was doing its work on me emotionally and psychically. And so I started to, um, when I started to kind of research for my work, I, I started to understand it on a more intellectual level. But when I returned to the place, and I kind of ran away from it for a while, but when I returned to the place, if you go out there and just sit, as, as Steve is saying, with, with patience, I, I feel a real kind of... Um, rawness of emotions and vulnerability sitting out there, which is, I think, a good thing for a human being to feel. And, um, and, and so I realized once I started writing about it how much work that place had done on me. And it, it holds so much um, kind of uh, 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 the whole spectrum of emotions for me, sadness, despair, joy, beauty. It's, it's just a a remarkable place. And you say in the same essay, this resonated with me, you, you, you say that uh, the desert has moved into the space that you once filled with commotion. Yes, and I, I think that's true. And, and that was one of, maybe one of the reasons I kind of ran from it when I was in my 20s, is that it, it, um, it doesn't let you hide. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it doesn't let you hide from yourself. It doesn't. It doesn't let you kind of uh, push your own thoughts and pain away. Uh, it it brings that to the surface. And you're you're now in Escalante. It's another type of desert, I guess. That be included in the the Great Basin. You, you seem to, and you lived in Sonoran Desert for a while. You seem to seek out these places. Pardon, say that again. You, you, you seem to seek out these places. I do seek out these places, and I and I guess that's part of maturing into who I really am, and and who I am as a as an artist, who I am as a writer. Um, I seek out places. You know, I love the I, I love the valley tucked in between the Wasatch and the and the Oakers, but there's a there is a lot of commotion in there with us. 
So I do seek out these open, quiet places where I can uh, feel, um, get to the kind of the core of of the essence of my work and the essence of me. Mm-hmm. Let me turn to Alicia Anderson. Uh, I understand you were born and raised in Northern California. Did you come to Utah for school, did you? Uh, a few years before school, yes. Okay. What was your initial reaction? It was a very different yeah, land. Yeah, so I grew up kind of on the other spectrum in Northern California where it's relatively more verdant than Utah. So coming here, um, it was a strange landscape for sure. But I think like any landscape, as soon as you give it your time and allow it to kind of wash over you, you become attached to it. And that's what's happened to me with this Great Basin landscape. How do we do that? I think all of us so far on the panel here has talked about giving your time to the land, your patience, you know, letting it soak in. Um, but as Jenna Richmond wrote, we often live in commotion, especially in cities. So how do you, how do you give time to it? I guess you just go out there. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's the first thing to give it time to go out there and experience it. Um, I think solitude is a key in that as well, so that we can kind of remove ourselves from culture and experience the landscape head-on with our senses and really become stationary, um, which I think is also kind of counterculture, the idea of becoming stationary and being quiet and really listening to a place around us. Mm. We turn to Michael McLean. Uh, you, you're also a, a transplant, I believe. Yep, I grew up in Salt Lake City. Oh, you grew up in Salt Lake. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, went away to, to Colorado State and uh, uh, came back. Uh, I wonder how this has informed your... Your art. I've, I've been reading some of your poems. Very interesting. And I, I know that you have a specific interest in the Nevada National Security site. That's maybe, correct. Maybe that would um, be a starting point. Yeah, I mean, my, my interest really started about 10 years ago. Um, I, I took US 50 home from a, a trip to California and was able to spend uh, a, a lot of time just kind of engaging with some of these sites along US 50, um, including some of the Bravo sites, which were some of the bombing ranges. Um, and, and it really just kind of fostered this interest in the, the military-industrial complex and its presence in the Great Basin. So my, my work um, engages a lot more with the culture that does exist there, mm-hmm. um, and particularly on the federal level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, um, there's actually one of the, uh, the pieces that I think was, was sent to you in preparation for this um, dealt with a, a trip that um, several friends and I made a few years ago um, we, we kind of jokingly call it the Atrocities of the West Tour, but it's, that's really basically what it boils down to. We, we visited the national, uh, the Nevada National Security Site, uh, as well as the Mountain Meadows Massacre Site, Gunnison Massacre, and uh, a few other places in between. And um, the, so the, the history of the Great Basin is really kind of what pushes my work. Mm-hmm. Do you have that piece in front of you? Uh, I do. Uh, I wonder if you'd read uh, just to pick a portion of that. Uh, sure. Just a moment. Um, I should say up, uh, up front that, uh, that this was kind of fact-checked and, and helped along by Dylan Mace, who is a, a good friend of mine, also a graduate of the Environmental Humanities Program. Uh, he grew up down in Millard County, and so he helped with some of the information on this. But I'm just going to read maybe the first opening paragraph or two here. Uh, uh, the piece is called Severe. There is standing water in Severe Lake. We argue over what we see in the distance, a dark spot in the lake bed that grows exponentially with each passing mile. 
The rain began in Pioche, Nevada, and now, just a short distance from Delta, Utah, it continues unabated. We argue over the darkness on the plain as if it were a monster, a marauding horde laying in ambush, something extinct. We do not believe ourselves. What we see through the streaked windshield of the car is standing water in Severe Lake and monsoon rains on the Great Basin. Lake, basin, if you know where to look, there is water all around, or at least it's memory. We are at the bottom of a deep, deep sea. Everywhere, on the tr- everywhere are the traces of marine life, the rain only a temporary obscurity on this dusty palimpsest. Islands tower above us, Weaver Peak, some long-lost Molokai, a leper left to thirst. There hasn't been standing water in Severe Lake in 28 years, and except for those epic floods of 83 and 84, for many years before that. Severe Lake, like its water sisters, Pyramid Lake to the northwest and the Great Salt Lake to the northeast, is endoraic, terminal, the end of the road. The aforementioned sister lakes, which are remnants of the highly saline Lahontan and Bonneville seas, have creeks and rivers that feed them continuously, though they give nothing away, save to precipitation. However, the Severe River has largely been devoured by a century and a half of farming and settlement, so even in wet years, Severe drains itself completely after the spring runoff. It gulps and gasps, wets its lips and chaps. Like everywhere else in this sprawling terminus, the bed of Severe slowly begins to crack. It cracks geometrically, pentagonal or octagonal scarring that gathers, crystalline, ephemeral, and is erased by a good wind, only to reappear a short short time later. Ten thousand of these splits in the earth, when seen from above, form form the same shape as a single rupture at ground level. Water simply disappears, absorbed by the flesh of the land, and then, like all things oneric, only hints at its depth. Beautiful. So that's kind of acts yeah. as the introduction to um, basically we, we go out to to explore kind of the violence that has been perpetrated on the Great Basin over the last 150 years, and that that acts as kind of the introduction to that. Mm-hmm. And you you get a sense from that piece, um, not only what you read, but uh, but the rest of it, um, that you know the land, the land holds the memory. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Also, water. It's uh, you know you'd, you'd have this image of a mirage, almost a mirage out there, and uh, you know water's ever present for those of us in in the West. They're present or yeah. not, you know. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, present or not, it's it's always on our minds. Yeah, and it, it's um, yeah, it, it was really startling for this this native of that place to actually see water in this lake that it basically you know it used to be a somewhat more regular occurrence, um, you know, in his grandparents' generation. But um, because farming is so reliant upon uh, irrigation, it is basically the river has been so dry. Mm-hmm. And so um, even as you drive past the rear lake, it always looks like there's water there from far away. Um, but there's very, very rarely any water in that lake. It's mm-hmm. just a dry terminal lake that... Yeah. Uh, Stephen Trimble, uh, I, this uh, Michael's piece resonated with me here. I, my mother grew up in uh, Hinkley near Delta, uh, out there, so we'd visit every once in a while. And as a as a kid, it just it seemed to me that uh, you know Hinkley, and, and you had the sign there, last services for I don't know how many miles, uh, that that was the end of the world. And that, that's kind of the attitude I think a lot of us have. This is you know there's there's nothing out there. That's right, and. You know, some of us find that exhilarating, and some of us find it terrifying. You know, that's the paradox of, of the Great Basin. You know, there's all that space between Salt Lake City and Reno and in southern Nevada and southern Oregon. It's this huge, huge piece of the continent. And, 
you know, it, it hasn't filled in. There isn't, again, we go back to water. There simply isn't enough water out there to support large cities. And there isn't enough water to support extensive forest. So we have rock and hills and space and silence. And when we go out and spend time there, uh, it, it really feels intimate to me. It's intimate in a way that being enclosed by forest doesn't feel intimate. I suppose that's completely opposite to the way folks might feel if they grew up in the eastern deciduous woods. But I, I find that space that you're talking about, Tom, just exhilarating. Mm-hmm. And then there's the paradox of, well, it feels timeless, a word that like people like to apply to it, and yet it's very dynamic and changing all the time. It's changed even from when I first wrote about it in the 1980s. And you have the the impact of humans that Michael has talked about. The, we think of the Great Basin as a bit of a dumping ground. It's a place to put nuclear waste and blow up bombs. And you can find damage and wounds in that landscape. Uh, and they're visible. They don't go away. So it's it's enormously complex, even though it's at first at first seems so simple. And that's one of the reasons it feels so rich to those of us who are uh, responding in some creative way, you know, in our work. Let's uh, take a break when we come back uh, more with uh, Stephen Trimble, Alicia Anderson, Michael McLean, and Jana Richmond. They are a panel which is uh, going to assemble as part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. That's at the Salt Lake City Library, 7 p.m. on Tuesday. That event is free and open uh, to the public. We're pleased to have the panel with us today. And uh, the the question uh, they're going to answer at the panel, we're talking about here, how does the place we live inform our art? talking about the Great Basin. We'll hear uh, more samples of their work. We'll get uh, Stephen Trimble to talk about some photographs of uh, this, uh, this, this great place. Uh, we'll hear a, a portion of a film from Alicia Anderson. We'll get to Jana Richmond to read for us, and we'll get more poems from Michael McLean. You're welcome to join the conversation if you would like at 1-800-826-1495. Love to hear about your favorite place in, in the Great Basin. Uh, you can join us by email as well to upraxis at gmail.com. More following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu slash science. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary, empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How does the place we live inform our art? talking about the Great Basin. Uh, 
and uh, it's inspired the creative expression forms as varied as the landscape and uh, four distinguished artists, a filmmaker, a photographer, a novelist, and a poet are joining in a panel discussion on uh, Tuesday, the 27th at the Salt Lake City Public Library at 7 p.m. to talk about the unique inspiration discovered in the Great Basin. This is part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival, and we have with us Stephen Trimble, Jenna Richman, Michael McLean, and Alicia Anderson. You're welcome to join the conversation as well at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. Alicia Anderson, I'd like to uh, play a little bit from your film, and I'd like to talk about this. So let's hear this first. This is uh, Mountains That Never Rest, a story of the Ochre Mountains, and this is in uh, ten sections. This is from the the first, uh, first section. I can pretend this endeavor began reasonably, but it didn't. I can say I knew the end and why, but it would not be true. It's been accumulating, insights piling from conversations with text, people, and place. Slanted notes on anything I had close by. It's been solitary walks on white grass folded by deer. It's been watching the same trees brush sky every season. It's marking and being marked. It's being chased by grazing black-sheened bulls. It's being blessed by warm rain on a ridgetop. It's finding nests, frail spindles of string and sprig. It's finding horseshoes glazed with rust and jawbones yellowing in a cradle of maples and clinging to them all as gifts of good luck from this unassuming place. It's been daring to stare into eyes and caves and holes. It's been feeling my own brittle self rest against fluidity and peace and upheaval. Reason has been present, but emotion carried me here. And that is uh, just a piece from uh, a very interesting uh, film, series of films. It's called Mountains That Never Rest, a story of the Ochre Mountains from uh, filmmaker Alicia Anderson. Um and so we've uh, lost our connection to to uh, to Alicia, but uh, we will get her back as as uh, soon as as we can. Uh, I wonder, uh, Stephen Trimble, th- this is about the Ochre Mountains. We get Alicia to talk about the the Ochre Mountains. These are sort of the forgotten mountains. Uh, we we tend to focus on the Wasatch. I, I think all of the Great Basin Mountains are forgotten mountains, and. Uh, Boy, I hope to get Alicia back because her work on, in the Ochres is really, really interesting. Yeah, um, I, bl- I do believe we have her back. Yes, I'm oh, back. Sorry about that, Tom. Okay. Uh, so, Alicia, we we heard a portion of the of the film. You you sort of outlined the the project, and I wonder. And and there's and while you're talking, should tell people in that passage that we heard. Um, you, you're uh, you're shooting from looks like tracks. You know the the. The rail line, you're you're traveling on the line, but you're looking out toward the Ochres from an urban perspective, and that's what most people have. They you know they don't go up in the Ochres, and in fact, the Ochre Mountains, it's part of them. It has disappeared right through the mining. It's a mountain that's actually actually part of it's going away. Exactly, exactly, and I think we view mountains as these stalwart entities that are constant in our lives, but in reality, the Ochres refute that. 
um, every day the mountains are essentially diminishing, and that's been true for over a century. And as you said, I think it's true that our view of the ochres has generally been from our urban settings, that we don't go out and experience them because we associate them with mining, which is so unfortunate because they're beautiful mountains, um, and they just aren't appreciated as much as they should be just because they've been colored with their association with mining, with extractive industries. Uh, part of what you say in the, the film is another part. You say removal of part somehow became removal of all. So they're sort of <laughs> Correct. sort of out Correct. of our minds. We, we focus on the Wasatch. Exactly, exactly. So I think there's a mental perception that we associate with the Yokers, um, that they just are essentially a placeholder for sunsets. Um, and what I most often hear is that they're barren, that they're brown. But in reality, once we enter them, we realize how much life there really is. And I think changing that mental perception and I think also um, increasing access. I think there's a huge relationship between access and attachment um, compared to the Wasatch where people are able to hike and enjoy them where there's public land, protected land versus the ochres. I think that really has uh, a consequence on how much people are allowed to attach to a place. Hard, harder to get to the ochres then. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but more rewarding then if you... If you, you know, you make the trip. I would say so. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm a little yeah, biased, yeah. <laughs> but I think it's beautiful up there, and the solitude is, is amazing. Uh, tell me about the, I don't know what you call these, installations. Uh, you, you're, you're helping people to put back the mountain that was removed. Uh, tell me how you do this. Yes. Do you mean the copper? The copper, uh, yes. Uh huh. Yes, yeah. So that would, I would term it installation art. Okay. Essentially recreating the peaks that we've lost, the peaks that we can't see now um, that were there over a century ago. So, yes, that, I would call that installation art, um, public art trying to raise awareness through the art form. So these are these are uh, you know, figures of peaks, and you, you suspend them uh, you know, by string, I guess. Is that how you describe it? And- I'm sorry. Say that again. Did you say are there pictures of the peaks? Uh, well, they're figure figures, they're cutouts, I guess. And then, and then, if you stand a ways at the right place and perspective, it actually puts the peaks back in the mountains for you. Exactly. Exactly. So the copper pieces, if you stand at the right perspective um, against the facade of the ochres, then it essentially completes them. With the idea being that the copper is what we exchanged for the peaks. Mm-hmm. So it's talking about this exchange and essentially questioning, is it worth it? Mm-hmm. Is it worth it to lose our mountains for the copper? What do you hope people get from from this? I think mainly for me, the, the films, it's to raise awareness. Um, it's astounded me as I was researching how many people did not know what the name of those mountains was uh, or how to spell it. So I think once we are aware, then we can choose to care mm-hmm. and for me, it's about raising awareness, and I think art has such a powerful, is it a powerful tool for that? It's, it has the ability to relay information, but it allows us to accompany it with feeling, mm-hmm. and I think that that is where the power of art lies. Uh, Mary Oliver, the poet, talked about that attention without feeling is just a report, and so I think when we can accompany this information, our experiences with the feeling that we feel with these places, then it can, it can start to change people's mental perceptions. And I wonder, uh, 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 by the way, uh, uh, we get the, well, at the place now in our discussion where uh, you know, anybody who wants to can just jump in. Um, uh, so I'm, I'll just throw this out, whoever wants to handle this. I wonder, can, can you go out to... 
can you go out in nature? Can you go out to these places without feeling? Um, I don't. I don't know. Well, I think you can. Uh, you can certainly go out without feeling. People drive I eighty right through the Great Basin and barely look away from the asphalt. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they have feelings, but their feelings aren't responding to the, the desert landscape or directed to the desert landscape. You know, yeah. it, it really does require a, a shift away from the commotion that Jana talked about in their daily lives in cities. And, and you know, Alicia's gone out to the Yokers and really made a point of responding to that landscape in all kinds of different ways. And Michael does that with poems, and Jana does that with, with her fiction. And we can all do that. Uh, it's, it's simply a choice. And we need a little guidance in a place that is that feels initially as foreign to us as, as the Great Basin feels to most of us. Um, you know, as Janet said, even, the, even when she grew up there out in the Tuella Valley, it, it wasn't the place that, that uh, she really spent a lot of time thinking about. It was simply the backdrop to her life. And I, I think, uh, you know, that resonates with me. A lot of us, probably the majority of us, go through the Great Basin at 80 miles an hour. Yeah. And so that... And, you know, you have to slow down. Mm-hmm. So that guidance you're talking about, is that, I guess, art can fill that? Sure. Yeah. And, um, and you know, I, I tend not to use the word art or think of myself as an artist. Uh, it, can, it, it can paralyze you. If you spend all your time trying to create art, it's a, it's a high bar. So I write and I photograph, and those are crafts, and I try to do them well. But um, I'm trying to tell the story of the place. I think of myself as an editorial photographer. I'm storytelling. The photographs that I take are not so much an expression of my own inner artistic landscape. What I'm trying to do is to capture the spirit of the place. And so my, my photographs in my writing as well would be informed by what I've experienced in that place and what I've learned about that place. And I try to, to capture that sense of what it feels like to be in one of those big basins or perched at the top of one of those island mountain ranges or communing with a 5,000-year-old bristlecone pine. I, I try to capture the feel of that place or that creature or that plant in the photograph. Uh, let me turn back to, uh, to Jana Richmond. Um, I, I wonder, do you have uh, something you could read for us? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read something that I, um, uh, some nonfiction that I wrote, and this is about, I, I want to um, respond to Alicia's, um, I missed part of that because I got disconnected, but I want to respond to what she's talking about with the ochres, because I grew up, um, those were, that was my place, uh, that's where we went Every weekend, that's where we went every day to get away from our parents. That's kind of where I spent my life, um, entering, entering the Ochres from the west side, from, through Settlement Canyon and Middle Canyon. So this is a, a little piece of an essay that I wrote about a childhood experience of mine um, and, and, and kind of does uh, show um, my ignorance as a child of the place where I was, but also the, the work that the place was doing on me. And kind of the creation of who I became. So this, was, this happened when I was eight years old. As we walked directly into, and we were following the ditch from our town. We decided to follow the ditch upstream and see where it took us. So 
As we walked directly into the Ochre Mountains, a strange and lovely thing happened. The ditch, my ditch, the one that carried toys away and disappeared under paved roads and into concrete culverts, turned itself as if by magic into a mountain stream, a beautiful gurgling flow that led us deeply into the shadows of large cottonwoods, a cool darkness so enchanting that it stripped me of my breath and fears. Less than a mile into the canyon, we stopped at a wide place in the creek, a canopy of branches and leaves above our heads, and a rough plank bridge across the water seemingly built just for us. We dangled our feet, waded and splashed, padded barefoot on the dusty banks, and lay on our bellies to slurp our feel of clear mountain water before starting home as the sun dropped. It was my first serious romance with a natural place, a place that provoked yearning and dreaming, a place that churned the belly and dizzied the brain and unveiled a world of possibility. It was the first time I understood that open air, dirt, trees, and flowing water make up the natural habitat of humans. We returned many times that summer and the summer to follow. We planned our lives, chose our husbands, named our children, and whispered our confidences as if the place itself would grant each fantasy and protect every secret. We had slipped through a secret chamber into our own enraptured forest. Then it was gone, bulldozed, stripped, destroyed, and flooded. In 1966, the year I turned 10, I witnessed my first western water project, an earthen dam constructed in the mouth of Settlement Canyon. I had heard my father, a man already in the plotting stages of buying a small ranch, a man who loved the sight of water spurting from metal pipes as much as I loved it cutting through the earth, a man who in future summers would give new meaning to the phrase moving water, as in we need to get that damned water moved, talking excitedly about the dam, but never in my mind did I align the construction of the dam with the destruction of my place until it happened. That illustrates, of course, the fragility of some of these places. Some yes, places are and gone. I, I think that I, I um, without really intending to, that that has entered all of my writing. My my first novel, um, the backdrop for that was the was the 1968 nerve gas spill, uh, nerve gas accident that killed 5,000 sheep in uh, Utah's West Desert, and my second novel was the the backdrop for that was the Las Vegas pipeline, the idea to pump water out of the Great Basin down to Las Vegas. So that theme keeps recurring throughout my writing, and I, I think the reason for that is because un, unbeknownst to me, at the time, that place had was just entering me and creating the person I became. Uh, uh, and so you continue to write about this. It, it, it's continues to be I, I do. Yeah. I, I, I don't set out specifically <laughs> to write about that, but it, it, it's just part of who I am, and it's a very, very powerful place to have grown up. And those were powerful experiences. Um, and the first time I returned, you know, I left, I moved to Salt Lake City, and the first time and to Tucson and to New York City and various places, and the first time I returned, drove over Johnson Pass and over to the Simpson Springs area, you know, along that fence that says, you know, don't stop here, no admittance along, along the Dugway Proving Grounds, and sat, just sat out there and just um, wept because it, it's, 
it, it's still hard for me to talk about it now because it's such a it, – that's what those places do for us, and that's why we need those places. That's what those places do for any human being if they allow it. Hmm. I want to turn back to Michael McLean, um, and uh, I'd like you to read uh, Backstreet Storage for me. Because sure. this was interesting to me that you included this, uh, and it illustrates a point. I, I think that uh, you don't have yeah, to you don't uh, have to go out there. By to... way of preface, oh, <laughs> yeah. sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Uh, I mean, much of my work over the last few years has really focused on two kind of nodes in the Great Basin. One being the Beck Street, um, Warm Springs area, north of Salt Lake City. Um, which, of course, is on the, the far eastern end of the Great Basin, and the other being the Nevada test site on the, the far western end. Um, so this comes out of a, a series of work dealing with the Beck Street area. Um, so Beck Street storage. Once you told me there is nothing so beautiful as a personal storage facility, the moment, the moment before its grand opening, a thousand doors, a thousand towns per square inch of potential, some kind of suffocating rain inside every space, that only that first boat stashed away in its darkness is destined to survive. The buckles of the life, preserve, life preservers clicking ever so slightly against its sides beneath the rolling earth. Make no mistake, the ground beneath my locker is alive. Steam rolling from the storm drains and seeping beneath retractable metal, corroding the single fixture such that the light hisses and tides with each tug at the tiny rosary chain. And you were right. There is nothing so lovely as space unoccupied as a door that does not seal a wave and a particle at once. I love that line, uh, the rolling, the uh, the ground beneath my locker is alive. I, that describes, you know, you're in the city, ground beneath you is alive. Right. I think what people often forget um, is that, uh, that that area of town is, is very geologically alive. Um, three fault lines run through there. Um, there's a massive hot springs complex that have, they've largely been, you know, the springs have all been diverted and, and um, some of them destroyed by the Union Pacific and by I-15 construction and other things. But it, it is a, a space that is very much alive. Hmm. Uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition of uh, <clears throat> areas of interest. Backstreet was, you know, rural, or rather urban, and the, uh, <clears throat> the test site, which is, you know, big open space. Right, and they, but they both are part of the same complex. I mean, the uh, the refineries on Beck Street were some of the first to supply jet fuel that made um, nuclear weapons delivery possible um, via, uh, you know, the testing that was going on in the Nevada test site. Um, they're all tied into the same story. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, let's take another break. When we come back more with our panel, we have a filmmaker, a photographer, a novelist, and a poet. They're going to be joining in a panel discussion about the unique inspiration discovered in the Great Basin. How does the place we live inform our art? That's a central question. And uh, we have with us uh, Michael McLean, who you just heard from there, who's an editor with both Sugar House Review and uh, Salt Front Studies in Human Habitat. Alicia Anderson uh, uh, has an interesting film out, series of films, Mountains That Never Rest, the story of the Ochre Mountains. Uh, Stephen Trimble uh, has an updated, I uh, think, version of... Uh, his wonderful book, uh, Sagebrush Ocean, um, and some photographs. We'll ask him to describe those photographs, talk about those when we come back. And we're talking with Jana Richman, uh, who grew up in Tooele and has lived in uh, desert areas uh, 
pretty much ever since, with some, you know, a brief uh, pause there. And uh, her books include The Ordinary Truth. More following the break. Next time on Radio Lab. What is there in human nature that allows an individual to act inhumanely, harshly, severely? Why did you do this? Why did you inflict all this suffering on them, on us? Why? It was not my personal affair. I had to do what I was ordered. Does everybody at some point have something dark in them that just tiptoes out, just from time to time? Saturday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. As part of Utah Public Radio and the Salt Lake Tribune's Utah Public Insight Project, we are asking you to share your thoughts about fee increases at some of Utah's national parks, monuments, and historic sites. Will paying more make you want to visit less? Or do you feel a fee increase is necessary? How much are you willing to pay to party in our parks? Become a UPIN source. Go to upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with a filmmaker, a photographer, a novelist, and a poet. Panel discussion is coming up on Tuesday at the Salt Lake City Public Library at 7 p.m. And we have the panelists with us on the program today. That's part of the uh, Utah Humanities Book Festival. We have with us uh, Jenna Richman, uh, Stephen Trimble, Alicia Anderson, and Michael McLean. Turn back to Stephen Trimble now. Uh, you uh, you say that uh, Sagebrush Ocean, of course, is about the, the Great Basin, and that the ecological stories of this place have become so complex that the book documents an endangered landscape, a place that no longer exists. Yeah, I, I did the field work for the Great Basin book, uh, the Sagebrush Ocean, a long time ago now, back in the 1980s. And I wrote about invasive species, cheatgrass, edging out sagebrush, and the problems that sagegrass were having with their habitat, but many, many, uh, many things have changed in that desert since then. And invasive species have become more of an issue. Climate change has accelerated. Uh, there was a resurgence in mining in northern Nevada that injected a whole new network of roads in the backcountry that used to feel empty and no longer felt empty. But what I'm so struck by now is is the impact of of sage grouse. You know, when I first began doing field work in the Great Basin Desert, I was in an obscure place that I had to explain to everybody. You know, when I said I was working in, in this place, I started with, you know, Nevada or west the West Desert of Utah. Those are at least words people knew, but you know, people weren't going out into the Great Basin to hike or climb and they weren't reading about Great Basin uh, natural history in their, their morning news. And now they do. You know, the sage-grouse has become uh, emblematic of many of the conflicts over public lands in the West. And in the past just a couple of months, the sage-grouse has been on the front page of newspapers from the New York Times to the Salt Lake Tribune. The the sage-grouse lives in places other than the Great Basin Desert, but, you know, I called the Great Basin Desert the sagebrush ocean, and that is indeed the way the place feels. Uh, It's an ocean of desert shrubs with island mountain ranges, and its natural history depends on a very finely tuned balance between grass and sagebrush and other shrubs and pinyon and juniper and their 
animals co-evolved with each of those. And as things shift and change, even just decade to decade in these past few years in my own lifetime as a, as a writer and photographer, the nature of the desert is changing and the, the ability to survive for the animals who have lived there for so long is disappearing. And that has surfaced as an issue politically. So it, I, I think it's fascinating. I guess it's, it's going to be time to do yet another updated edition of my book here right, shortly. Right, right, yeah. Uh, I wonder if you could uh, describe uh, a couple of photographs that you're, I think you're going to show these in the event. Um, it's uh, And you sent these to me to uh, Mount Moriah. This is yes. the, the weakness of yeah, radio. I, you, you'll have to go to the event to see these, but to, perhaps you could describe these for me. Sure. Um, the, the, thing, the thing about being in the Great Basin, Tom, is that you have the chance to establish a relationship with an individual valley or an individual mountain range or an individual um, bristlecone pine in this case. So the, the ancient bristlecone pines, the, you know, the oldest living things on the planet, live in these remote, extreme environments at treeline on Great, great Basin ranges. Um, it, one biologist puts it, puts it this way. It really isn't that they, take, that they live for so long. It just takes them so long to die because they're, they're just hanging on for about, literally thousands of years. And many folks have been out to the Great Basin National Park uh, which is on the southern part of the Snake Range, just across the Utah line into Nevada. You know, wonderful place surrounding Wheeler Peak, bristlecone pines growing on those ridges. Uh, the park actually doesn't even go down into the surrounding basin. It's strictly the mountain range itself. And there are a few other places in the Great Basin where Great Basin bristlecones live. And Mount Moriah is the northern part of the Snake Range across Highway 50 from Great Basin National Park. Designated wilderness, but not within the national park itself. And so I went out there recently to renew my acquaintance with those thistle cones. And it's uh, it's remote. It's up a really rugged road, but not all that long a walk to get up onto this flat plateau at 11,000 feet with thistle cones scattered across alpine grassland below the summit of Mount Moriah. And there's really no other place quite like it anywhere in the Great Basin. It feels like you are truly in the middle of nowhere, and you have this enormous privilege to stand next to these uh, either dead trees or dying trees or, or trees that are younger, but in some ways it's the trees that are mostly sculptured, weathered wood, just filled with rosin that allows it to last and last and last through the winters and summers, with maybe just one bow with needles that, that are still photosynthesizing. And there are pieces of sculpture that are just thrilling to photographers. Uh, I happen to be there on the weekend of the supermoon, and the night before the full moon, the moon popped up. There was still sun, sunset light on the, that weathered wood, and I had a glorious time photographing. So those, those are some of the photographs I'll show next week at the library. Yeah, they, they are, are beautiful. Uh, I wonder, uh, Michael McLean, uh, if I could have you read uh, Sedan Crater Number One. Okay. This is, this Just a moment. Describing an iconic feature of, of uh, you know, the Great Basin. Yeah, this was um, Sedan Crater was created uh, in uh, 1962, I believe, as part of the Plowshares program. It was a, a program to try and explore so-called peaceful uses uh, for nuclear weapons. 
um, you know, building bays, building canals, that kind of thing. So um, the, nothing really prepares you for standing at the, the edge of that crater. It's just the amount of earth that was moved was incredible. Uh, sitting at crater number one. One, after we learn the tumbleweeds are Russian thistle, the only growth here at the bottom of our curiosity. They spurt from the playa in monsoon rains and are excised, blown a thousand miles like all things no longer here. Their name, apropos of everything, I imagine the names of weeds half a world away. The backhanded tributes that they should take seed in this of all places and thrive, that is belief, is proof above all else. When the hole was dug, they were almost certainly called tumbleweeds, every word chosen as precisely as a synonym for risk, as a fair-weather day. The smallest twinge of survivor's guilt, faint sense like sage over sand, and the ground opens, and still they bloom, the smallest sensitive hairs. That they, that the smallest, excuse me, the smallest sensitive hairs that tell the antlion to rise, mandibles clinking, swords to plowshares. Two, in every John Wayne film, they are uncredited cameos, the slow, dull metaphor for montage, for being passed by, an ellipsis accruing, bookending our hero and his righteousness, these husks, so many scar-faced villains circling the camp at night, and what is the West without this desiccation, without its thorny invader? Three, as to the sharpened exoskeleton, a man once pruned, you've got to just keep on pushing, keep on pushing, push the sky away. These words will break you off at the root. There is no choice but to dig, and still the sky follows. Yeah, I like that line in every John Wayne film there, the uncredited cameo, and that's uh, one of the themes we've been talking about during the whole program today, isn't it? That uh, we, we, It'd be better if we paid attention, if we focused on, rather than, you know, just driving through or, or having this as the background backdrop. Yeah, there's, um, I, in all this time I spent studying this place, I actually just made my first trip up Notch Peak um, about two weeks ago. And, uh, I mean, the again, there's a bristle cone grove up um, near Notch as well. And, uh, I, you know, you don't see anybody else on the trail, and it's just so much solitude. And you get to the top of that peak, and the... The, the view from there, a 360-degree view of the Great Basin, and uh, it is absolutely the most beautiful view I've ever seen. Hmm. Let me turn back to Alicia Anderson. I'd like to play another brief passage from the from your films. This is from the from the last of the of the ten. Uh, you're talking about place. Let's hear this, and I'll have you comment on this briefly. This is a land of mountains. That is what my map tells me. It speaks with a confidence of sure and deep lines. It says, come, ascend here, and I promise you will see earth and sky unhinge and bleed together. It speaks as if mountains will always be. People will leave us. Mountains will not. They are a sure place. The ochres refute such maps. Peaks have been quarried, buried, and moved. This is a land of mountains. So when a mountain is removed, how can I not ask why? I tell myself to keep writing, to keep marking, and perhaps an answer will come. And the next question I write is, does my attachment to this place outweigh my attachment to this way of life? What is place? Some call place a process of carving out permanences. Place is when time and space thicken and become flesh. 
Place is a pause in movement. I titled my copper installation, I Wonder If We Gave Them Pause. I wonder if this mine gave someone pause. Yeah, that's a good question. I wonder if this mine gave someone pause. And, I, and your question, this key question earlier in that clip, uh, Lish Anderson, uh, I wonder if my attachment to this place outweighs my attachment to this way of life. And I, I'm sorry, Tom. Can uh, you repeat that? Oh, uh, sorry. Uh, so the, the 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 quote in 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 that uh, passage, mm-hmm. you're wondering if your uh, if your attachment to this place uh, outweighs your attachment to the the way of life. I guess you're talking about the copper, the energy we get from from mining. Exactly. Yeah, and and that's what I came to realize with the ochres that there essentially is this collision of lifestyle with place, and I think that's um, one of the dangers of attaching to place when you love something, someplace, someone, there's always the potential of loss. And, um, and that's what I came up against with the ochres, mountains that are continually being lost. And the whole reason behind it is to fuel our way of life. Um, and I think it's important with the copper to not conflate product with process. There's nothing wrong with copper. We have copper in our bodies. But what I question is the process through which we um, retrieve it essentially from the earth. And I think that's kind of what we're coming to, that question in larger environmental issues. In some ways, I see the ochres as a microcosm of that, this idea of do we care enough for our places, whether we're talking globally, locally, to adjust the way that we live um, so that we can protect these places, so that we can have these places that we can run to, that we can experience, um, as Jana beautifully said, face ourselves in essentially. So yeah, I, I believe that question is key for all of us to answer. Just to have a couple of minutes left uh, with uh, Jana. Uh, I wonder, you'd, you're concerned as you, your writing reflects this, Jana Richmond, that uh, some of the places that you love are are in danger. And so you write, that's your response, and uh, we've heard from the panel, they, they use their art to respond. Um, what do you, I wonder if you're hopeful. I wonder if you're looking to the future. Some battles um, won, some battles lost. Yeah, I, you know, I think that it, it, if you reach a, once you reach a certain age in life, you will experience that loss no matter what uh, of, of places that were special to you. Um, my parents both recently died, and when I was out in Tooele, I went up into the Ochres again from that side, and uh, many of the places that I spent as a childhood have now been restricted um, by... Um, Rio Tinto, Kennecott, um, and, and I think they were probably um, owned by them when we were up there as kids, but they've now been cut off, restricted. You can't even get to places that I went to as a child. So um, we are facing that question, and we, I don't know that there's, uh, there's no easy answer, and I don't know if there's any answer at all. And we're out of time here, but you can go to the panel discussion if you're going to be in the Salt Lake City area on Tuesday, Tuesday evening, 7 p.m. It's at the Salt Lake City Public Library, and it's part of the Utah Humanities Book Festival. How does the place we live inform our art? It's the question they'll be addressing. And uh, we've been talking with uh, Stephen Trimble, Jana Richman, Alicia Anderson, and Michael McLean. Thanks to everyone. Appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Tom. And I hope you'll join us tomorrow for Access Utah. Thanks for listening today. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. 
You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. 